Okay, so this is this is just the greatest picture ever. Okay, so we got this guy named Donald, and he cut this. He took this. Wow, it's like he was a professional or something. Anyway, so Sean and I are out there, and we're doing this whole thing with with slime and stuff, and uh, we we made it with this food dye, and we put too much food dye in. So after we were done, we were like green, like we wash it off, and we're green. Uh, and I, I had a wedding the next day. And so I'm like scrubbing. So I get it all off of my face. So it at least came off my face. So I go to the wedding. I'm doing the wedding. And, and we do the ring exchange. You know, I ask the best man to hand me the ring. So they're in my hand. And I go, and we have these rings. And they're looking at my hands, and they're green. And I'm all, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. <laughs> Incredible Hulk. He is awesome. Anyway, uh, next week, we were at summer camp all last week. So hopefully next week we will have a video to show you and how we didn't kill anybody. But we tried. That was a joke, by the way. Okay. Uh, just to let you guys know where we're at, we are um, three weeks left till we finish the book of John. So we've been in it for almost a year. So three weeks, we're going to be done with that. And then after that's done, uh, we're going to do four weeks on what's called spiritual warfare. We're going to do that from an element perspective, which means it's going to be kind of fun, and you guys will get a lot of information. Hopefully, you'll really like that. Uh, uh, James uh, is going to help me with that. So if you haven't seen James up here in a while, you'll, you'll see James up here. Uh, Eric. Eric will be up here helping, too. So see. Like a whole family affair. After we do that, we're going to do two weeks on uh, a couple movies that have been out recently that a lot of people ask me questions about. So I'll give you popcorn. We'll talk about that. And then we're going to do four weeks on a thing called Empire. And, or six weeks on Empire. And Empire is going to be this little history thing. I'm going to walk you through a lot of the Old Testament, some New Testament stuff. Put this all together because you guys are going to be so smart. Christmas, we're going to cut, uh, cover a thing called Stuff. And then in January, we're going to hit the book of Ephesians. Okay, We're going to go through the book of Ephesians till next summer. And then we'll hit like Esther. You're like... Wow, I'm not going to remember this. We're going to hit Esther during the summer. Esther is just the funniest book ever. The guys in Esther are just crazy. (laughs) They're like, we need our women to do what we want them, so let's make some laws. You know, Esther is just crazy funny. So we're going to do that. But you've got to wait a whole year to to get the comedy, apparently. So why don't you guys stay on me reading God's Word? This is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 and 20, and it says this. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's pray. Father, this morning we as a people ask that you would come and teach us, that we would understand the things that you long for us to know and so that we could live and walk in the ways that you call us to. God, this morning as we look at this whole idea of the resurrection, I ask that we would understand more the implications of that for our lives so that we would live truly in the life that you bring. Amen. Have a seat. If you have a Bible, you can open it to John chapter 20. Once you get your finger there in John chapter 20, then I want you to flip the other way and go to, and go to Isaiah 52. Okay, so that's how it's going to go. Uh, we are, like I said, almost done with John, three weeks left. But today I have the best news ever, which is that Jesus rose from the dead. Seriously, seriously. We're gonna, one of these years, I'm going to cover like six weeks before we hit Easter, all the things going up to it, and then we're going to hit Easter, and I'm going to talk about Jesus raising from the dead, and you guys are going to be like, woo, and be really excited, not like, yay, go team, you know, that kind of thing. It'll be cool. So we're going to start with Isaiah today. We're going to go to the book of John. Next week, we're going to hit the book of 1 Corinthians just to round out this whole idea of what the resurrection is and how it impacts our lives. Your Bible is put together with an Old Testament that I believe foreshadows who Jesus Christ is. The Gospels and are reflections about his life. And the epistles are what does that mean to us? How do we live that out? What does it actually mean? Uh, in the Old Testament, all the way back in Psalm 16, verse 10, it 
God promises actually to not let his holy one see decay, meaning Jesus will rise from the dead. Then you get to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, this is actually even called the Old Testament gospel because you see so much of the life of Christ here. So I'm going to read this to you, then we're going to hit the book of John. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, goes like this. See, my servant, that is Jesus, will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up, that is crucified, and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. He was beaten so badly that he did not even resemble a man any longer. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He, Jesus, grew up before him, God, like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, meaning he was common, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took upon... Uh, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and was crushed for our iniquities, that is, our sins. The punishment that brought us peace, that is, shalom, right relationship with God. You've got to keep that in mind because later we'll come back to that in John, uh, was upon him. And by his wounds we were, we are healed. We all, that's you and I, like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He, Jesus, was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And five false trials. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was killed for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. We looked at that last week in Joseph's tomb. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, he was killed and buried not for his own sins, but for ours. Yet, whose plan was it? It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The resurrection is promised 700 years in advance before Christ. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, that is death, he will see the light of life and be satisfied, that is resurrection. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, crucified between two thieves. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Tremendous Details, tremendous details. If all we had was the second half of Isaiah, you would have a picture of Jesus and his ministry 700 years prior to his coming. How he would forgive our sins and give justice to God and raise those who believe to new life. It's amazing. So if your Bible open to John chapter 20, here we go to the promises that you see fulfilled in John chapter 20, where John gives this proclamation, this is what's going to happen. Here, now you see that Jesus has been betrayed, tried, killed, laid in Joseph's tomb, and now he rises from the dead. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, uh, that is Sunday. We think Monday is the first day of the week because that's our first day of the week. But for the Jews, it was Sunday. The Sabbath was a Saturday. So Sunday was the first day of the work week. Uh, when the early church actually gathered, they would gather on Sundays. And they would either gather before they went to work or after they got off work. So it was either early in the morning or late at night. 
none of which you are willing to do because you come to the 11 o'clock service and you like your sleep. So apparently we wouldn't be good people in the early church. Uh, we are here again on Sunday because it's the day Jesus rose. Um, early on, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, that means 3 to 6 a.m., Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, again, this is a, this is a tomb that's cut into the side of a rock or a mountain. Then they take this stone and they roll it into the entrance so it falls in. So you can't just, like you and your buddy, can go, let's pull that stone out. It takes a lot of guys to pull this out. You are also told in Scripture that Romans placed a seal on this and said, don't touch it or we will come and we will kill you. Okay? So Mary gets there. She is, she's the first one on site, and she notices that the stone is missing. What that means is maybe grave robbers got in. Something might have, might have happened there. You know, She is there to mourn, but she sees this, and all of a sudden she starts to freak out. Now, it's interesting for all of you conspiracy nut theorists who read the Da Vinci Code and believe it, uh, that, that they use Mary here as the very first person who gets there and sees this, that she's part of this account. If, if this was something that was made up, Mary would never be a part of this account. For first one, she was previously demon-possessed. And you don't use demon-possessed women as your eyewitnesses for accounts about God. Okay, it's just not something you do. Secondly, she was a woman, as most Marys are, unless your parents are really weird, okay, you know, as most Marys are, and she wouldn't have any legal standing. Women didn't have any standing in the courts of that day. So because Mary is first shown, actually a lot of scholars, actually this proves that this is a true account because it wouldn't have been invented that way. I think Mary gets there first because she loves Jesus the most. I think those who are most forgiven usually love him more. Jesus delivers her from a terrible life, and God in a great way honors her, which you'll see in just a few minutes. Uh, so the body's not there. Stone is gone. Verse 2, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that would be John, and said they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. She's afraid, again, because of the grave robbers. Uh, or if people are angry at Jesus, some people would have taken the body to go and desecrate it and do something awful with it. So she's worried. She goes to get Peter and John. Verse 3, So Peter and the other disciple, John, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So Peter's old. He's out of shape. You know, John's very young. He gets there first. Uh, he, he looks in, but Peter actually goes in. Uh, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. So John gets there first. He's a little quicker, but apparently he is not as brave as Peter, so he hangs out outside. Peter gets there, has a little more guts, goes inside. They're both trying to figure out what's going on because the body is gone. Now, Mark Driscoll writes about this, and it's really funny. He says there's two miracles here. The first one is this, that Jesus rose from the dead, and the second miracle is that a single man folded his own clothes. <laughs> so they, so there you go. They find the outer garments. You know, the bear, they're, they're folded and left there. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea wrapped him in 75 pounds of spices and linens. Those wrappings are laid on the side, nice and neat and folded. I don't know, maybe it's why John is so startled. Oh, well, what is that? I don't, I don't know what that is. You know, never seen a grown man fold his own clothes before. Just got to wait for Peter to lead him down in there. Uh, at this point, again, they have no clue of what's going on, except that the body probably was not stolen, because if you're going to steal a body, you would not take the time to unwrap the corpse all nice and neat and then run off with it. You know, being a famous death, you'd grab the body, run somewhere else, do all your doings, and then wh whatever you're going to do. Unwrap Wrapping a nearly mummified body is very time-consuming, but it's also very gross. Okay? I don't know if you ever had to unwrap a mummy. No? Okay. All right. Check it. So it's very, very gross. And then to fold all those clothes and set them back there in the corner, well, that's a very tidy burglar if that's what it is. Okay? 
So, so Jesus is not there. He wasn't stolen. It kind of looks like he just got up and he left. Verse 8, this is talking about John. He saw John and believed. They still do not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Now, some translators will come and they will look at this and they will say, well, now they believed Mary because the body was gone. Others say, no, no, John was the first one to actually get it. I think John remembers the scriptures here and how Jesus speaks about he is the resurrection and the life. He will lay down his life. He will take it back up and he starts to connect this. I think John thinks, I get it. And where Mary, I think, loves him most, I think John is the first to demonstrate faith. In verse 10, Jesus comes. He spends a little bit of time with Mary. First person he appears to is Mary. Rises from the dead, takes a moment to spend with her. Regular woman. She is not rich. She is not famous. She is not powerful. She is worried about Jesus, and he shows up to her. Verse 10, the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? And the word woman, it's a term of endearment. Okay, it's not like, woman, make me a sandwich or something like that. It's, 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 when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he sees his mother and he says, woman. It's a term of endearment. I use it on my wife sometimes, woman. And it's, it's, it doesn't go over the same. But you know. so, Woman, why are you crying? They said, they have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, see, Jesus, it's biblical. Jesus says it. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, and I love that. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried, cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them. And I love this. Jesus now includes all of us in his family. We are adopted into the family of Christ. He says, Go tell my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. First appearance that you know that John records is to Mary, a woman who had once had seven demons, and so she had to be pretty bad. You don't get demons, you don't catch demons like you catch a softball. Okay, somehow you got to do something really bad to actually catch these things. And Jesus takes time to reveal Himself to her because she is distraught. I do not know why she didn't recognize Him right away. Maybe her eyes are filled with tears and she can't see. Maybe she isn't expecting it, so she doesn't even notice. You know that that it's Him. Maybe she's startled by the angels calling her woman. You know, and she's like, oh, I just can't think anymore. You know, maybe a post-resurrection body is, is a little bit different you know, than that. The last time she saw Jesus, he was beaten so badly, you couldn't even recognize him, and so maybe that's it. And she thinks he's the gardener, which is nice for the greatest miracle of all time, right? It's, are you the gardener? That's great. So he calls her, she recognizes who Jesus is, and she runs and embraces for dear life. And there is a ton of conjecture about this verse where, it, where he says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. I think, honestly, this is actually very simple. I think Mary is weeping and she's hanging on because she lost Jesus and she loves him very much and she got him back and it's like half an hour, an hour. She's like, oh, Jesus is like, okay, okay, okay. If Jean Holmquist, if you ever, she, she has Bruce back here. You ever been hugged by Bruce, uh, you know, Jean Holmquist's brother? It's probably like being hugged like that. He just doesn't let go, okay? I'm in the back and he comes up and gives me a hug and I'm like, what's going on? He just doesn't let go. She's just crying and hanging on. I think she's like, okay, okay. I got to go to the Father. You've got work to do. You're going to be a witness. We're going to get something. Okay. You know, I, I think that's what Jesus is doing. You know, don't hold on to me. We've got things that we have to do. If you've ever seen a parent who has lost a child or thought they lost a child where they thought they were dead or kidnapped and they get them back and they get that kid back, they don't let go till that kid graduates college. <laughs> if that, you know, because it's like they got their kid back. And, it, and this, I think, is exactly what Mary is with Jesus. Mary loved Jesus, thought he was gone forever. And you see her heart. She really loves him. 
but her work now is for her to tell people what has happened to be an evangelist. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. She told them that he had said these things to her. So she goes and tells the disciples that Jesus, he's risen from the dead. It's crazy. It's, it's awesome. And Mary now becomes part of our legacy. An unrespected, unpopular woman becomes highly regarded simply because she loves Jesus. And I believe that is the heart of all things. When you love Jesus, he changes everything in the world. So Jesus now goes to the disciples. Verse 19, on the evening of, the, of that first day of the week, that'd be Sunday night, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Exactly what Isaiah said Jesus would bring. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now there's also much conjecture here too. Doors are locked. Jesus shows up. The Christians, they're very scared. You know, they're afraid someone's going to kill him. The body is missing. And this cowardly band of people who are hiding in a room, afraid for their lives, end up being transformed. They're transformed by the power of spirit and the risen Jesus. And after this, after Jesus shows up, these guys face martyrdom boldly, and they change the course of the entire world. It's completely amazing. Right now, they're scared. How did Jesus get in the room? I don't know. Maybe it's like heroes and he, and he walks through a wall. Maybe it's like Star Trek and glorified bodies beam in. I, I, I don't know. Maybe they got a back door. And Jesus is like, you don't know about this one? And he just shows up and he, and he walks in. I don't know. But he walks in and he says, you guys are good. He walks in and he says, and he says peace, peace. Verse 21, uh, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Again, shalom, right relationship with God. This is what brings joy, that peace. Peace is not just an absence of war. It is the blessing and hand of God's favor. Isaiah says, again, that is what his death would bring, that peace. The hand of God reaching to you and I in kindness. We had no peace before this because we were enemies of God. Judgment is all that we had. Now through Christ, we've been reconciled to the Father. It's amazing. He declares peace on them. Then he gives them a job description as he gives one to us as well. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And there it is. Again, I tell you this all the time. Practically, we'll look more about what the resurrection means next week when we look at 1 Corinthians. But John has been a series of sendings. The Father sends the Son. The Father and Son send the Spirit. The Father, Son, and Spirit send you and I into the world to live among people. Not to segregate ourselves and hide away because we're afraid of, you know, the world. We're supposed to live in the world, but we're not part of it. He calls us to live there. You know, how does God get his work done throughout the entire earth? He disperses his children to do it. In Acts 17, 26, it tells us that God determines the time and places where we will live. So where you live, where you're at right now, that is where God sent you to be. That's where you are. We get this concept that missions is, is all about going over there and, and living in huts and eating bugs and not taking showers and being stinky all the time. You know, for, well, some people it is. You know, some of the people are sent over there. But you are sent where you are too. We are all sent people. Some of you are sent here. Some of you are sent there. We are all sent. And while you are where you are, that is where you are sent. While you are where you are, whatever job you're in, the relationships that you have, the families that you're in, as the Father sends the Son, so He sends you to be His witnesses and His children to make a difference in the world because of the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now Jesus gives them authority and power to go and do this because it's pointless to go on our own. I mean, how do 11 cowardly guys hiding in a room change the world, convict of sin, tell people to go from death to life? You need more than just your self-will to do that. So Jesus gives them power to do this. Verse 22, And with that, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
the Spirit comes and He changes lives and conditions. This is actually an echo of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. When God breathes into man and brings him alive, Jesus now breathes on His disciples and they become a new creation. A whole new being. The first time this has ever been seen of what we would call a Christian, where God actually resides by His Spirit in people, brand new, right here, takes place by Jesus breathing on them and creating something new with life right there. They get their function for their ministry and purpose in verse 23. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, a lot of people take this verse and they run into all kinds of weird and bizarre places with it. What you have to realize is this is all in context. He just says, peace be with you. I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he gives them that last admonishment. Now, the words that Jesus says, you know, they emphasize that the Holy Spirit is not bestowed upon people in the church as, as an ornament where we're hanging around our neck like a, like a cross. It is to empower people as an effective application of the work of Christ for the entire human race. That's why he gives us the Spirit. The, the, the whole idea of this commission to forgive sins, in the Greek, it's a very strange construction. What it really looks like is that, that God does not forgive people's sins because we decide to do so. It's like if you like somebody and I don't, and you say, I'm going to forgive their sins, and I go, oh, I'm not. You know, who wins? You know, whoever beats up the other one, I, I don't know, because that's not how it works. What they're saying is the essence of salvation is that you have give, been given the opportunity to go and spread the gospel to people who need to hear it. All who proclaim the gospel are, in effect, forgiving or not forgiving sins, depending on whether the hearer accepts or rejects the message that you give. The job of God's people is always related to sin. I have had people say to me that, that I come here for a few weeks, and they go, you always talk about sin and Jesus. I'm like, yes. <laughs> I don't know what else to talk about. <laughs> that's, that's all there really is. You know, what God has done in place of our sins and what he calls us to. Some people, uh, like the, the Catholic Church for one, point at this verse and say, see, you have to have someone like the church. You've got to go through. And if you don't go to the church, you can't be forgiven. No. The way we participate in the forgiveness of sins is not the church forgiving sins. It is proclaiming the gospel and telling people about the resurrection so they know how to get their sins forgiven. The gospel is how we participate in people's sins being forgiven. It's like this. Uh, last week, uh, we went to summer camp. And we needed an extra boat. We didn't get one, thank you very much. Uh, but we... <laughs> But we went to summer camp, and, and imagine we did get an extra boat that we borrowed. And I got to drive it around, and I took it out on the lake, and I let all the kids pee in your boat, and I run over some skiers, and I, and I hit a few cliffs, and before I leave, I, you know, I, I run over a big rock, and I sink your boat. You know, and the next thing you know, it's been a couple of weeks, you haven't seen your boat, so you, go, you call me up, hey, where's my boat? And I go, oh, I got a few pieces of it. And you say, what do you mean? And I go, well, I did this and this and this, and I wrecked it, and I left, but, but I got a few pieces. And you go, what's your insurance? And you need to apologize to me. And I say, I don't need to apologize to you. The guy at the marina, I walked in there and told him, I said, hey, I'm really sorry, it's, it's sunk, it's over there, and, and I walked back out. You would say, no, you, you sinned against me. You need to apologize to me. And the point is, when we sin, we have an offense against God. We go to God, and we talk to Him, and we apologize for our offense against Him. That is what we do. We participate in people's forgiveness by pointing them to God. We don't have the power to forgive sin, but we do have the authority to proclaim the gospel. And that's what we do. Your sins can be forgiven. You can have peace with God. People need to recognize that peace. We need to realize that we are sent and recognize that we are sent for the purpose of the gospel. And that only gets done through the power of His Holy Spirit. That summarizes the entire New Testament church, what their function is, right there. That's it. So now, moving on, Jesus appears to a guy named Thomas. 
to Thomas. And I love Thomas. Thomas gets a bum rap all the time because he's always asking his questions. But I love Thomas because he has questions. Verse 24. Now, Thomas, called Didymus. Didymus actually means twin. So I, I, I'm assuming he had a brother. If not, that'd be kind of weird. And I don't know what they named his brother. Maybe the other one. I don't know. Because <laughs> his. Uh, now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So Jesus shows up. Thomas isn't there. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, people say, Oh, poor Thomas. He needed to have more faith. No, I think that's great. Think about it. Aren't you glad Thomas is not the guy who goes at the checkout stand and looks at the Weekly World News and believes it? You know, oh, I had a UFO baby. Oh. You know, my baby was born as a wolf man. You know, aren't you glad Thomas is not that guy? I am. You know, if someone goes to you and says, I know so-and-so was raised from the dead, you need to go, right, where's your meds? You know, that's what you need to to say to him. Thomas is not going to pretend he's a believer just because the other ten say so. You know, he doesn't have low self-esteem. He doesn't go with the crowd. He wants to know the truth for himself. He says, show me a live Jesus and I will be a follower of Christ. If not, I'm going to be a strict follower of Judaism. He doesn't say he's not going to follow God at all. He will just stay where he was. In Judaism, following the God of Scripture. He wants to see the holes, the nail prints, the scars. Show me. So verse 26 says, a week later, and I love that he makes him wait a week because Jesus is just funny like that. His disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. So Jesus does his thing again. Ha-ha, back door. They still haven't found it yet. I don't know. Okay. (laughs) Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Thomas has got to let me like... Oh, great. I I open my mouth again. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. I think that's really cool because you never see in Scripture that that the disciples or Thomas or anybody told Jesus what he wanted. Jesus shows up and he's all, touch it. And he's like, no, touch it. You said you wanted to. Yeah, see, see, you know. It's actually more here, but anyway. You guys are the easy crowd this morning. I like this, you know. Anyway, every one of us, I think, we start just like Thomas. And we start just like Thomas. We all have questions or doubts where we go, you know, is this true? You know, God knows what we need for faith. And, you know, I think when people share their stories, you see how almost every single person comes to Christ just a little bit differently. You know, where we figure out Jesus is God and we follow. Some people, it's answered prayer. You know, somebody's praying for you and, and God takes care and you're just like, I, I believe. You know, some people... It's uh, some type of healing. Some people, it's a changed life where you see someone who lives consistently and realize God must be alive because they're such a knucklehead and now they're different. It's, it's amazing. You know, uh, some people, it's like understanding from Scripture where you're reading the Bible and it opens up and something just makes sense to you and you believe and your mind clicks. Some people, it's a needed friendship. You know, God brings you into community. I think God provides valid grounds for his kids having faith in him. For Thomas, it was scars and calling him to belief. He's like, get over and get on with it, Thomas. Let's go. And Thomas responds appropriately. In verse 28, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. He worships my God and my Lord. Some people claim that Jesus never claimed to actually be God. It's myth and legend and they all make this up. Like, Jehovah's Witnesses say this to me all the time. I love it when they come to my house because I quote this verse to them. You know, and they go, oh, Jesus isn't God. And I go, oh, okay, here we got, you got Thomas, okay. And here Thomas says, my Lord and my God. I say, oh, well, what does that mean? And they go, and they pull out this little reason, this book, Reasoning from the Scriptures. I, I got one, and there's not much reasoning in it. But uh, so I open it up, you know, and he starts trying to talk. And I go, I don't want you to tell me what they tell you to tell me. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, you know, blessed are you because you believe. 
You know, I mean, what do you do with that? I'm like, well, I think, and, and, and it's great because I just keep going, no, no, don't tell me what they tell you to tell me. What do you think that means? Well, close the book. What do you think it means? As I walk down the driveway and they walk back like this. Because <laughs> I'm just excited about, I'm not, I'm not like mean. I'm just excited about Jesus. And I, and I hate it when his name is defamed. And I hate it when people live and act like knuckleheads and don't live for him like they're supposed to. But, but I really want to know, you know, what, what do you think about that? Jesus claims to be God. What do you do with that? I mean, one of the main reasons Jesus was killed was for blasphemy, claiming to be God. This is the perfect opportunity for Jesus to go, oh, no, 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 you got it misunderstood. Okay, let me explain what it really is, you know. What greater moment to do that? You know, if he was a good Jew, a good rabbi, a good friend, he would have stopped it. But he receives Thomas's worship. In verse 29, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. And then he says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What a statement. I mean, you saw it. You are blessed. After you will come millions of people who can't put their finger, you know, through the hole in my hand. You know, you are going to be their representative. You will be their eyewitnesses. And we will be blessed if we believe. You know, it's not just recognize the information. It is actually belief. It's an issue of faith. You and I are always forced to trust the testimony of another. Faith is not without grounds, but it does require trust. Some people say, well, if I, I could see God, I'd be a Christian. No, you wouldn't. You'd be dead. That's what would happen. When, when God shows up to Moses, Moses goes, I want to see you. And God goes, well, you can't really do that. So he hides Moses in a rock. He passes in front of him. And the literal Hebrew for it means you will only see where I have just been, which is the story of our lives. We cannot see God face to face, boom, and we fright. So you don't want that, okay? What you want is you want some faith to believe. That's what we need. The way our history is built, it's all about information that's transmitted by eyewitness testimony. You read the paper, you see events that are happening around the world, and you believe it because you see it there. Sports scores. We're not there for all the games, but you believe sports scores. You know, what's the weather like in Indonesia today? I don't know. Look it up. You, you believe it. You know, famines around the world. Somebody got a cat out of a tree. A puppy fell into the well. You know, it's like we believe that because we read about it. You even believe some bizarre stuff stuff perpetrated on the internet stop forwarding that to me because <laughs> you all seem to want me to read some bizarre thing about something i'm like whatever okay hey, you believe these things because people report them like you know fox or cnn or whatever you have witnesses that you think are credible and there we as believers rely on faithful eyewitness recordings of everything so does god he has faithfully recorded through john and the other gospel writers eyewitness accounts of what christ did in 1 Corinthians, you see that at some point, Jesus actually appeared to 500 people at once. And if they were lying, surely one of these 500 people would have said, you're lying. But they didn't, because that's what happened. Now, how do we know Napoleon lived, or, or George Washington lived? You know, I don't believe in Napoleon, because I don't like short people. Or, you know, whatever, I don't know, whatever you got. You know, this is the thing. History tells us. You know, Thomas is told, blessed are you because you believe. But blessed are the rest of us who have not seen and yet believe. We begin in doubt, and we move to faith. You know, it's also good to look at the motive of the guy who's writing the account. In no way is any of this beneficial to John. At this point, John has seen all the other disciples murdered. Uh, he writes knowing this is probably going to be his death sentence for writing this. He's not doing it to get on TV or get fame or popularity or get a cult with seven wives and grape juice where they all wear the same tennis shoes. You know, John's motive is actually very pure in writing this. So this is how he ends the chapter. Verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record 36 miracles. John includes seven, five of which are unique to the book of John. He's like, I could have told you thousands of things that Jesus actually did, but I told you seven miracles, and the best one and the greatest one is that he rose from the dead so that you can have life. 
This is why, John Mazzoni says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, I would say our King, the Son of God, our Lord, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did he write it? So we would know Jesus as God and King and have life. That's why he wrote it. John strips away all the details throughout his gospel and just gets to the nitty-gritty of who Jesus is and why we should trust him. And that's the focus and point of his entire gospel. You will never understand all the stuff Jesus ever did unless you believe, unless you believe. You know, other places, John writes about how the whole idea of eternal life the idea of eternal life. It is you and I living here and now the faith that God has given us. Christians uh, get told this stupid idea that eternal life is something that happens when you die. You hang out here for a while, then you go to heaven. You know, this place is like a, like a bus station. It's not very nice, but at least it's got a bathroom. And we hang out here for a while, you know, and then... But that's not eternal life. That is not eternal life. If I live another 50 years on this planet, what type of life am I supposed to be living here and now? Eternal life. That's the kind of life I'm supposed to be lived. Life in step with God. I mean, how, how do we have restored relationships? How do we learn to kill our pride? How do we learn to love when we want to hate? How do we learn to proclaim the gospel to show people that they can be free from their sins? How do we hear the Holy Spirit and what He asks of me in this next 50 years that, that I live? Eternal life. One day, we will experience heaven. We'll stand in His presence, be fully known as we are known. These are all true promises. But in this world, we have eternal life now. Death, life, faith. God floods the present, and this world can be different, and our lives can be different because Jesus is alive. Everything has changed. Everything is made new. You are sent, and you are loved, and Jesus is alive. That's amazing. And if He is Lord... Uh, everything in the world is implicated in this idea of the resurrection. Everything is implicated in that. Uh, Mark Driscoll has this quote in, in one of his books, and he says, The resurrection is not a color on the palette, but a canvas by which we paint our lives. The resurrection is about everything, the culmination. You know, we always focus on Christ's death, death, death. It is the resurrection that brings us life, brings us reconciliation with God. It's... We'll look at this next week, and it'll be a lot of fun too, but we'll look at this next week of what a resurrected and redeemed life is supposed to look like. This is what he gives us, and it is useless unless we believe, unless we believe. And you are people who are called to believe. This is why every single week I bring you to communion. Because communion is the place where we remember what Christ did for us. You take that cracker and you break it like his body was broken for you and I, and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice, which reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. And we do this in remembrance of his death, but also of his life that he has forgiven us and raised us a life so we can live and walk in his name. It's amazing the things that God has done. If we're going to worship God through communion, we're going to worship God through prayer. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back of the hallway. And if you need prayer, if you're someone who has never understood the resurrection or its implications to who you are, uh, if, if you are somebody who doesn't even know who Jesus Christ is, but you have some questions, go and pray with them. They would love to pray with you. If you have any other prayer requests whatsoever, you, you can go and pray with them. That's why, that's why they're there. We're in James, book of James, we're called to pray for each other. So we will pray for you. We're going to worship God through communion, through prayer. We're going to worship God through song. The band's going to come back up. We're going to do a couple songs. And as they do, you're invited to take communion. You're invited to pray where you're at and ask God to reveal more of His will to you so you can live and walk in that faith and trust. Uh, we are going to worship God uh, through giving. There's offering boxes on the side walls, and there's an offering box in the very back of the room. And we give simply because God gave so much to you and I. That's why we give. And then lastly, we'll also worship God through fellowship, where hopefully you guys can hang out. You're so strong, Sean.
Because we are a redeemed people now. We are a people who have been raised to life that we can live and walk in this life that Christ calls us to. And so we, just like Mary, have been given this call to freely proclaim the gospel. That is what our call is. And that is lived by how our lives and it's lived by what the things that we say. It's lived by the things that we do. We are redeemed people called to have redeemed relationships and that is supposed to infuse the entire world as God scatters us as His children to every place that you go this week and this month and the next 50 years and the rest of your lives. I hope all of you have another 50 years coming. I don't know if I do, but you know, we'll, we'll see how that works out. Apparently, Would you guys pray with me? Father, this morning, I do ask that as your people, we would understand the good news of this event, that the gospel finds its culmination in the resurrection and how we also can be a redeemed and resurrected people where once we were dead and can no longer hear your voice and the things that you long to say to us, now we can. Now we can truly lay ourselves at your feet and truly be your children. God, have us as we walk this life to remember that uh, we are people to live and walk in humility, that you did not do all this to save us because we are so good, but because you are so good. Not that we are worthy, but because you are worthy. God, really, uh, we are nothing without you. That the Lord of all creation would know our name and come and die for us is a very humbling concept. And I ask that we would be, again, those who also spread in humbleness the message of your grace and forgiveness, that we would show that the world can have their sins forgiven and they can be in a right relationship with you, the one true God, again. Amen.